If I was to ask you the question, if you could have one thing from God, I wonder what your reply would be. Some of you might say, oh, a Lamborghini. Some of you might say, uh, I don't know, a bigger house. Some of you might say 10 billion pounds. I don't know what your answer would be. Do you know what my answer, my, my answer to that question has been for 12 years now I've been a Christian? Lord, show me my sin. Not what you might have expected. But for 12 years since I've been a Christian, that has been, without doubt, my number one prayer. When I became a Christian 12 years ago, I knelt down on the 20th of June, 12 years ago, with my mum and dad in our front lounge. And after many months of just wrestling with the gospel, wrestling with it, I just surrendered. It was ultimately I surrendered to the extraordinary truth of the resurrection. If this really happened, I have to, I have to engage with this Christianity. But you know, my big, my big kind of stumbling block was sin. Because the Bible said that every single person had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now the problem was this, is that I, Tom Shaw, high achiever, didn't feel like a sinner. And the only way I could say those words, Lord, I accept I'm a sinner, was through a sheer mental thing. It was, well, God, if you're utterly perfect... I can accept I'm not quite that, quite. So yes, I suppose I'm a sinner. But this is the thing, guys. I knew at my heart that unless I understood, if unless I understood really the reality of what it is to actually be someone who has fallen short of the glory of God, I would never become all that God wanted for me. And you might say, Tom, that's the weirdest thing in the world. You're saying you want to be miserable? You actually want to be convicted of your sin? Yeah, I do. I really do. And a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an amazing preacher of the last century, led a huge church. He said this, and I don't miss this, guys. He said, having dealt with thousands of Christians, he said most of them were miserable. And yet in the New Testament, you see this unbelievable emphasis on joy. Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Joy, joy. And he said the greatest necessity in the church is the restoration of joy. Because it was the joy of God's community that infected cities, that made people go, why are you so happy? And he said this, he said, it is because for so many Christians, they don't see in their hearts, they don't see the reality of the sin. And therefore, there is little or no joy in terms of being cured. It's very simple. Christians are always banging on about, guess what? Jesus is great. You can be saved by him. And for most people, and even us Christians, we think, saved from what? <laughs> I'm not that bad. If I was to say to you, here's Gustav Stranvik. Most of you know him as his doctor. If I was to say, hey guys, here's Gustav. He's a doctor. Get really joyful. You go, uh, okay, I'll try. But if I said this, Gustav, then a few months ago, he did some tests on some blood you had. He found out that you had a terrible, incurable disease. And it looked likely that you were doomed. And for days and weeks and months, you faced the reality that you were going to die. But then suddenly the phone rings. It's Gustav. 
Guess what? We've just realized that actually if we operate now, we can save you. <gasps> You're rushed into hospital. Gustav and his team operate on you. You come round. Total success. You're going to have a full life. How would you feel then when you see Gustav? You'd be like, yo, dude. That's a silly little picture, but it's kind of a picture. You see, unless we understand actually our condition, we will never experience the joy of knowing what it is to be healed. And so today, as we look at this passage, you see, it's so helpful to us. Because you might go and say, okay, Tom, I get that, I understand that. But if you're anything like me, you go, when I think about what sin is, I think about sin being external actions. Those things that some people do sometimes, like murder, or attacking people, or fraud. Whereas actually, the Bible says that for most of us who don't do those things, nevertheless, sin is not simply those obvious external actions. It's about subtle, internal attitudes. What's the number one commandment in the Bible? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. So when we aren't loving God in that way, in our hearts, that's the best definition of sin. We might look on the outside, nice, pleasant people, and not doing anything overtly wrong. But in our hearts, when we're not in that place, we're actually in a place of sin. So you might be thinking, great, this sounds like a positive message. Guys, this is going to pick up, okay? Fear not. Remember what I'm saying here. Don't remember the big picture. Why have I always said, Lord, show my sin? Because actually, I want to be more joyful than any other man or woman that has ever walked the planet. But if we try and bypass the way that the scriptures, the Bibles, take us to that place of joy, if we just focus on those things rather than allowing God to illuminate in our hearts those things that aren't great when they're subtle, actually, we will never enter into the fullness and actually we will never become a church that is full and mature and doing the things that God wants us. Does that make sense? So if you have the Bible, Genesis 34, this is, this is a raw passage and this really happened, but this is the thing I want us to notice in it. I want us to notice the subtle sin. Because this, this passage is bookended. It starts with a very obvious sin, an attack on a young girl. We go, ooh, definite sin, and it is. And it finishes with some brothers of her killing the attacker and the whole city. And we look at that and go, wow, very obvious sin, okay? But what I want us to notice is almost in the shadows of those very obvious sins is a man called Jacob and his subtle sins. Because I think if we allow his example, his bad example of subtly sinning, you will see yourself in that. You will see yourself, oh, I'm a bit like that. Not so that you go, oh, I'm really sad. But so that then when we come to look at the gospel, it will have a power that means in 30 minutes time when we come back to worship, you'll go, you would have seen more in your life of the things that aren't great. But actually, you'll therefore come into a place of ecstatic wonder that the holy God of the universe still loves you and he still accepts you. That's the key. It's the key. So we see here, verse 18 of 33. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem 
which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. He camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the price of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, he lay with her and humiliated her. His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were, were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for, you, longs for your daughter. Please, please give her to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will and I'll give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. They said, well, we can't do this thing to give our sister to you who is uncircumcised for that will be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you by being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we'll take our daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young men did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the city that came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the of the city, saying, "These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and give. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours?" Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city, while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered the city because they had defiled their their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So the Bible is profoundly real, okay? We look at our nation, 21st century right now in the UK, think that could 
basically be a scene out of the world we live in. And yet what it does is this. We can either look, as often we do, at the, at the rape at the beginning and the attack at the end by her brothers, and we can almost let those very obvious incidents dominate this passage. But what I want us to do in the next few moments is just to look in four ways, four interconnected ways, in which Jacob, who's almost in the background, Jacob, his subtle sins of omission. Now see, the Bible talks about two types of sins. Types of, types of sin called commission, sins that we commit, the obvious ones, you know, the things like murder, or rape, or whatever, sins that we commit that we often think that is a sin. But it also talks about sins of omission. Now this is huge for us. It's huge for me. Because I can think, I've never done those things. Big A star. But sins of omission are the things that we should do, the attitudes we should have, but we don't have. And that's what we see in Jacob. The passivity of this man is breathtaking. And I have to be honest with you, when I read it, I was disgusted with him, but I was also thought, you know what? I can see myself in him. I can see bits of myself in this guy. So first of all, the, subtle, the first subtle sin we see with him is the sin of disobedience. The sin of, subtle sin of disobedience. Bit of a tongue twister. You see here it says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. You think, big wow. Now, he had just come from the north, okay? And when he was in the north, hundreds of miles north, God said to him, I want you to return to Bethel. Big deal. Bethel was further south than Haran. So, sorry, than Shechem. So what's happened is, he's come part of the way back to the place where God told him, but he hasn't been fully obedient. That's huge. Think about this. The living God gives you specific instructions and you deliberately don't fully obey them. And the interesting thing is, what we know about Shechem is that it was probably quite a wealthy town. It was on the place, a center of trade routes. So it was probably a more comfortable, more materialistic, more pleasurable place to be. And he must have thought, well, I'm pretty near Bethel. It's only another 20, 30 miles. I might as well just cozy it down here in Shechem. And so it says he, he set up home there. And that tells us something. You see, it tells us, first of all, that literally God actually, he, he wants us to be in certain specific geographical places. <laughs> That's the most obvious application of it. He actually wants us to be in certain geographical places. And yet, we need to be clear that that doesn't mean that they will always be the most comfortable places. I mean, I know various friends here who are from Southern Africa, from Zimbabwe and other places. And when I often talk to them, you have a meal and they talk about their homeland. They talk about the sea and the whales and the temperature and their friends and the steaks. Oh, in South Africa, you know, and the wine. And you can just think, man, these guys want to be, they want to be there. But they know God actually has said, I'm calling you for a season here. I want to be in that comfortable place, but actually I know God wants you here. Some of you third years right now are facing the decision, where, does, where, where am I going to go? And it may well be right that God wants you somewhere else. But let me just throw this in. Sometimes you can, without actually hearing from God, think, I'm going to go back to my parents because I won't have to pay rent. It'll be comfortable. I'll be loved, nice and cozy. Is God want you to do that? Or has he said, I've put a passion in your heart for this city? 
And it might be more uncomfortable. You might have to work at McDonald's for a bit. You might have to just do a bit of a rubbish job. But if that's what God said to you, even if it's more uncomfortable, it's the right decision. But what we see here with Jacob, subtly, geographically, he's not in the place that God wants him. He's near, but he's not quite there. But even more than a geographical issue, disobedience actually shows itself in terms of a cardiographical issue. I.e. not just to do with geography of where we are, but where our hearts are. You see, the Bible says, it says this, God wants our hearts in a certain place. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. What's the greatest command? I said it a few moments ago, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That is a radical, radical love. He's saying, I want your heart there, not near there. Yeah, I want it there, now. Tom Shaw. And be aware, Tom Shaw, that the things that take your heart, so you're kind of one foot there and one foot here, the things that do that are subtle. (laughs) They're subtle. They're pleasurable. They're good. But when they rob us of, of that journey of obedience to the place of where my heart is actually genuinely in a place of seeking first the kingdom. I can genuinely say that you are my true delight and no other sneaky little cheeky idol is trying to rob my heart of that. Only we can take responsibility of that and only we know the answer to that because it's subtle. You might be on the surface of it ticking all the boxes but God today says there's a subtle sin of disobedience where he wants our hearts right in the place, right in the place. Now, not in 5, 10, 20 years, now. And for some of you today, God's just going to be saying, I want you to repent of living a double life. I want you to repent of subtly letting your heart be governed by other things. And give yourself in obedience. Because when God asks us to do things, it means that we're called to do it. I am just uh, in the last two or three years, there's been various prophetic words uh, over me about me uh, having a role to serve in some way other churches and other church leaders and helping them to, to build their team and to build the churches in a healthy way. And, and I, I found myself thinking, oh, blimey, what? You know, I'm only just getting my head around leading one church, helping other guys and having a servant role. And, 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 I, and it was almost, I could sense myself staying in that Shechem, staying in that place which is more comfortable now. And God was saying, come on, out of the boat. Don't get comfortable. Step out of the boat. Make sure your heart is continually on a pilgrimage, always to the Bethel. Don't settle in that comfortable place that's near. Keep pushing on. It's subtle. Keep your heart devoted. So we've, in faith, I've started to step out and connect with other church leaders who have invited input. And the amazing thing is God has more than supplied, more than stepped up. So first of all then, a subtle sin of disobedience. But then secondly, we see a subtle sin of hardness of heart. You see, what we see here, he is in the wrong town. Okay, I made that obvious. He's in Shechem. He should be in Bethel. The consequences of being in that pagan town rather than being in the place where God wants him is that they're surrounded by people with a very different value system, which means his teenage daughter, Dinah, it says here, innocently, she went out to see the women of the land. Now, I'm only a, a young father. I've only been doing it three, three and a half years, days in Lily. But I think you can in some way summarize the role of fathering is a couple of things. It's about protection and it's about affection. They rhyme. Roughly. You know, it's about as they get older, teaching them about 
what teenage boys are like, you know, teaching them about the wisdom of life. But it's also about pouring affection into their lives. Because when you pour affection into them, that therefore they're less vulnerable to trying to get affection from elsewhere. Now, I, I admit I've got tons to learn. But you see, if Jacob was doing that, would she have been quite so vulnerable to the attack that happens? Because what we see is, is that this guy... Um, this, this young prince, Shechem, whose dad is the king of the area, he obviously is used to having everything his own way. He sees this girl, asks her out for a drink, takes her down to Zizi's, you know, has a little lager shandy, and suddenly, awfully, he attacks her and he rapes her. And the news comes back. The news comes back to her father. In verse 5, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. Now, any, any fathers here with girls, I, I mean, I don't, I can't honestly think of a scenario that would more send me into a righteous fury than that. If I heard, I heard of a pastor once who'd heard that his daughter had just been manhandled slightly by some guys who had drunk too much and he just went straight around the house. It's <laughs> a very godly guy. And just had some very stern words. And I thought, yes, absolutely right. You know, I mean, even now, you know, in the worship time, Daisy and Lily, I'm watching the other little two-year-old boys. I'm like, does she watch it? Hey, treat her kind. Benji slow. Ollie Pickford, just be watching. Just be careful. Ethan Shillitoe. There's something in a, in a father that's just protective. And what do we see here? It's breathtaking. It is breathtaking. No reaction. We see in a few verses, the, the brothers, when they find out, it says here, they were indignant and very angry. In the Hebrew there, it's the same phrase that speaks of God's indignance and anger in the times of Noah, when he looks down and sees the world is just full of evil, and he is indignant and hugely angry, and it's a right emotion. Yeah, they feel the right emotion. And interestingly, later on, Jacob, when he hears about his son Joseph being killed, it says he tears his clothes with distress. So this guy, this guy can react, but what is breathtaking when he hears about his daughter being raped, there's no reaction. And interestingly, throughout this whole passage, at no point do these guys ever apologize. They just offer this insane deal, which we'll come to in a moment. They never apologize, and yet he never in any way reacts. Now, why am I saying that? Think about that. Something is wrong with his heart. This is the subtle sin of hardness of heart. I mean, maybe it's because in some way he's not been walking in obedience to God as we learned the first thing. But second, we see here when this sin comes his way, rather than responding with righteous anger at the sin, there's just a hardness. There's a hardness. And you may say, Tom, that's a, a little bit extreme. And I guess it is. And I'm sure most of us here, if there was anything akin to this, we would indeed react but let me issue this little challenge to us, is even if our hearts aren't quite as hard as that, I know, I know that my heart can so easily become subtly hardened, just subtle. Wayne Grudem, one of the leading theologians of our time, an American, uh, who was um, one of the key translators of uh, this translation, ESV, in the year 2000, he tells us this, this incident, he says, 
the year 2000, he was working at Tyndale House, house in Cambridge uh, with 11 other translators, top scholars. And they're working nine hours a day on translating this Bible. The most intense, focused, exhausting thing he said he'd ever done. He said, you, wouldn't, you didn't want to even nip to the loo because you'd come back and then they decided on a verse. And that was it. You know, you'd missed out on the Bible being translated into this new translation. And he just said it was ex- extraordinary, focused all the time. He said he'd then go to the hotel in the evenings and they'd be eating meal and talking about translations, talking about it, and then eventually go to bed. And he just said after a few days, he actually got, he was so tired, he just set his alarm a bit later. And he didn't bother having his own Bible time with God. For goodness sake, you know, he is in the Hebrew and the Greek nine hours a day plus some. So you kind of, you know, cut the guy a little bit of slack. But after a few days, his wife Margaret said, you know what? There's something, something's changed in you, Wayne. There's something different. And he said, you're absolutely right. And he went off and he prayed and he said, he, he wrote down these things that he could see had slipped into his life very quickly, even amidst translating the Bible. He said this, these are the things he suddenly saw in his heart. Pride, talking about myself a lot, often inwardly hoping people would praise me, irritability, lack of love for friends, my friendships are just on hold, general feeling of ill-ease, hard to study scripture and to pray, self-reliance, no peace. I know what he's talking about. That subtle thing, that subtle transition that can happen in our hearts. When we just, for him, it was just those times with God. And it wasn't of the scale and of the, the dramaticness of Jacob not reacting to his daughter's attack. But nevertheless, it's the subtle sin of hardness of heart. It's a challenge to me, huge challenge. Thirdly, though, we see the subtle sin of abdication. Cheery morning, eh? Subtle sin of abdication. Verse 8. Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for, you, for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriage with us. Give your daughter to us. And he goes on and outlines this insane deal, okay? And then in verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he defiled their sister. So the point is this. The rapist and his father come to Jacob and his dad and they present a deal. <laughs> it's, it's breathtaking. They say, um, yeah, he, he, loves, he loves your daughter. Yeah, of course he does. The one he's just met. He really loves her. Of course he does. He loves her and he wants to marry her. Um, and so uh, we, we would like to say, could he marry her and therefore be with her forever, the girl he's just abused? And then also, you can give us all your daughters, all the other ones that you might have, and we'll give you all of ours. I mean, is it just me? Or that is the most insane deal I've ever heard. I mean, if, any, if some guy came to me and said, yeah, I'm afraid my son has just done this to your daughter. But what we like to do is propose that they get married. And then all of our family integrate for the rest of eternity. Sound good? I think I'd be like... Well, you can die slowly, or you can die really slowly. It's your choice, really. I, I'm offering you that choice. Um, do you think I'm completely insane? This is the father of his family, the family that has got the promises of God over them to be the, 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 the nation of Israel. And this guy has the gall to suggest marriage and intermarriage. 
But the staggering thing is, Jacob says nothing. His sons are the ones that, I mean, okay, they come up with a dodgy plan. I admit that, but I kind of understand it. Maybe that's just my sinful heart. But they, their sister's been attacked, and so they set up the plan. Now, I'm not condoning that. It's sinful. But what I think is more penetrating to me, to Tom Shaw, is actually Jacob's abdication. Where is he? He's the father of this family, and he's just passive. He's like one of those dads you see in Super Nanny, you know, where the mum's getting, like, attacked by these kids, and, like, screaming at and the dad's, like, watching telly, you know, completely abdicated. And it's an absolute epidemic in this nation. My, the absentee father thing, I think it's probably the biggest thing. Guys who have sex with women, they get pregnant and then they walk away. And so there's this absolute nation of fatherless kids who not, not, not surprisingly find life horrendously hard. Teenage violence happens and, and, and everything else. It's an absolute epidemic, abdication of responsibility. I mean, it's, it's why in the tube in London, a young teenage boy a few weeks ago can be stabbed in broad daylight by 10 guys and people just walk around. It's breathtaking. It's not, I don't know him. I, I'm not going to get involved. It's breathtaking. And yet, I know in my heart there's times when I can just abdicate. I can just, I can just sense, Lord... You know, yes, you've called me to be salt and light in this city. You've called us to think about this city, but Lord, oh, come on. Lord, you can do it without me getting actually that involved. Surely, I'm just going to focus on you, Lord. God wants us to be a people who see that in ourselves, not to bring us all depressed, but so we see it, and in a few moments, positively, we'll see God's amazing remedy. But finally, what we see here is also the final subtle sin of selfishness. I mean, it's just... Verse 30, look at this. You might have even missed it. The city has been killed, okay? And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, that's a terrible thing you've done. You shouldn't have gone and killed loads of people. No, he says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. And if they gather against me and attack me, Jacob, is there anything good in you? He doesn't say, you've just killed a whole load of innocent guys. I am absolutely devastated. He doesn't say, where's my daughter Dinah? Yes, I know her mum is Leah, the one I didn't particularly love, but she's still my daughter. He doesn't say those things. He says, your actions, he doesn't mention any ethical content. He talks about a tactical content. He said, you've been tactically stupid. Because we, we, I, I, he doesn't even say we, in fact, I could now get killed. It's breathtaking. This guy is just so selfish. Isn't this amazing? This guy, Jacob, you know, you hear throughout the Bible, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you just think, wow, you know, the patriarchs. And the Bible won't allow us to put them on a pedestal. It won't allow us to make a hero of them. Why? Because there is only one true hero in the Bible, and his name is, it really is. Now, I know we can look at this and think, oh, this is kind of painful. You know, when I looked at this, I thought, yeah, there's things in here that, okay, maybe not as extreme, but 